As a child in the 1960s, I grew up reading Spider-Man and Superman comics. I would spend hours and hours poring over the pictures, engrossed in the stories. Then, after reading what was inside the comic book, I would turn my focus to the back of the comic book, to all of the advertisements that would be found there. The things that were for sale on those glossy pages were incredible to the eyes of a seven-year-old boy. I remember them advertising something called sea monkeys. I'm serious. They were called sea monkeys, where you would send away, you'd get a little packet in the mail, you added water, and you had an instant pet. They looked like these little humanoid sea monkey creatures. I was tempted. And then I remember seeing an advertisement for x-ray glasses. I can still see the drawing of a kid or a young person wearing the glasses and looking at their hand and seeing their own skeleton. As tempting as sea monkeys and x-ray glasses were to my young, impressionable mind, the object that caught my attention was a box of lifelike, realistic, high-quality toy soldiers. I loved military movies back then as a little kid, and I loved playing with my little toys and my little soldiers, and they had these pictures of these lifelike military guys with bazookas and rifles and tanks, and I would just stare at them for hours and thinking, oh, it'd be so fun to play with those. And so, after months and months of staring at those pictures of lifelike soldiers with bazookas on their shoulders and rifles in their hands, I finally emptied my piggy banks put my money in an envelope, and sent it off in faith to some far-off land. And then, starting the very next day and every single day afterwards, for several weeks, I checked our mailbox. Until one day, it happened. A package with my name on it arrived. My heart began to race. As I took that box, I ran downstairs to my room, tore open that cardboard, opened the little toy box, plastic box, to reveal these army figures, these toy soldiers. And as I looked at them, my heart sank. This was a bunch of junk. This was a bunch of garbage. These weren't these three-dimensional lifelike figures. They were these little wee plastic things about this tall, and they were as thin as a piece of paper. And as soon as you picked one up, you'd break it. I couldn't believe how I'd gotten ripped off. Have you ever had an experience like that? Have you ever had idealized expectations about something, only to have them dashed with a dose of reality? Maybe you found yourself working at the job of your dreams, only to discover that what you dreamed it would be like and what the job is actually like are two very different things. Maybe you found yourself married to the man or woman of your dreams, only to discover that the person you wake up to every morning is not exactly like the person you dreamed about the night before. Have you ever had your idealized expectations dashed by a dose of reality? Now, I've discovered over the years that many followers of Jesus Christ have this kind of perspective when it comes to their expectations regarding the church in the very first century. I remember years ago, I was down in Dallas, Texas, and I was there for a conference. And on the Sunday, I was driving around looking for a church to attend. And, and I passed this large church building, and the sign in front of the church, the name of the church was simply the early church. That's what they called themselves, the early church. Now, why would a congregation choose a name like that? They chose that name because they were trying to communicate something. They chose that name because they were telling the world the kind of place they were striving to be. 
They chose that name because they have, like many of us have, an highly idealized view of what the early church, the church in the first century, looked like. We read in the New Testament about supernatural gifts. We read about miraculous healings. And we imagine those first century congregations, the early church, to be perfect places filled with spiritual giants. What word comes to your mind when you hear the name Einstein? Most likely you think of the word genius. And rightly so. I mean, Albert Einstein is considered to be one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century. When you read the professional papers that he wrote, you marvel at the mind of this man. However, when you read the personal letters that he wrote, you see a different person. Einstein was married twice, and neither marriage was particularly happy. He wrote to his first wife, telling her it was essentially a marriage of convenience, and that if she wanted to stay married to him, she had to bring to his room three meals a day, and she was not to expect any physical contact with him whatsoever. In his personal letters, Einstein openly confessed to having multiple affairs and showed little affection for his children. Now you think, why why are we talking about Einstein? Because Einstein is a classic example of uncovering the reality of a relationship by reading letters that were written in that relationship. Did you know that when you read much of the New Testament, you're actually reading personal letters? Personal letters that were often written to or about local churches in the first century. The New Testament portion of the Bible could basically, real basically, be divided up into two parts. The first books of the New Testament are the four Gospels and then the book of Acts. Think of these as first century biographies, as historical narratives. And then the rest of the New Testament is essentially a bunch of personal letters. Even the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, was a letter written to seven specific churches. Now, much, if not most, of the New Testament is made up of personal letters. They're also, by the way, called epistles. Epistle is just a fancy word for letter. Now, when you read these letters, when you read these epistles, you'll discover that in the midst of some incredible events taking place, and there were incredible events taking place, there was also a lot of dysfunction and a lot of conflict going on. The book of Acts includes a scandal over some falsified financial giving that cost two church members their lives. The book of Acts describes a fight about pastoral care in the Jerusalem congregation. The book of Acts describes how a local church was divided over whether or not a certain leader should be trusted. The book of Acts details the minutes of a special leadership meeting that had to be called to address some false teaching that was spreading around. The book of Acts describes a battle between two foundational church leaders who had a major falling out and parted ways over a disagreement regarding a staff member. And that's just a couple examples from the book of Acts. You know, the book that's devoted to highlighting the amazing and miraculous acts of the apostles. But there's so much more conflict and confusion in the New Testament church. The letter to the church in Galatia was a knockdown, drag-out fight over some serious false teaching. It includes details of a major and very public battle between two church leadership heavyweights, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. The letter to the church in Philippi, considered the most joyful and positive letter in the New Testament by many, includes the following instruction. 
I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sintichi to agree with each other. Paul says, I'm begging these two people, please get along. The letter to the church in Colossae was written to combat some serious false teaching that was sweeping through the churches, teaching that denied the deity of Jesus and belittled the nature of Christ. I mean, I could go on, but I think you're seeing the point. Never mind looking at a hand through phony x-ray glasses, we can often look at the first century church through some phony rose-colored glasses. Now, the truth is, the Christ followers in the first century were very real people with some very real problems. And the truth is, the Christ followers in the first century had some serious questions, and they were seeking some practical solutions. And that is what we are devoting the next several weeks to unpacking. Today, we are introducing a powerful, wide-ranging, life-impacting series that we've entitled Life Hacks, Practical Solutions to Everyday Problems. Essentially, we're about to go on an extended verse-by-verse journey through a first-century letter, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. Now, this is going to be a long series. It's beginning before the NHL playoffs start, and it's going to end as the training camps for the next year's season begins in August. So the letter we're studying is a long one. And the letter that we're studying has come to be known as 1 Corinthians. It's entitled 1 Corinthians because it's the first of two letters that we have that Paul wrote to the congregation. Now, if you have a Bible with you, turn in it to the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And as you're turning there, let's address a foundational question. Why did Paul even write this letter? Now, those who are unfamiliar with the Bible might think that 2,000 years ago, Paul sat down and said, okay, well, I'm supposed to write a book of the Bible. I better get going on that. No, like it was some kind of essay assignment from God. That's not at all how things came about, especially when we're talking about the letters that were included in the New Testament. Now, if you know me, you know I have a bad habit. I love eavesdropping in on conversations. When I'm in restaurants, I'm sitting and looking at my wife, but I'm actually listening to the people in the booths around me. I love to eavesdrop in on what people are saying all around me. Well, when you read the letters in the New Testament, you are eavesdropping in on correspondence from leaders in the first century. You're reading a letter that was written from one person to another person or from one person to a group of people for a specific reason. You're dropping in on conversations. Essentially, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians because he was aware of some serious issues that had begun to develop amongst the Christ followers in that city. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack Paul's answers to their issues, and then we're going to apply Paul's answers to our similar issues. And in doing so, we're going to discover and uncover some valuable life hacks. We're going to discover and uncover some practical solutions to some everyday problems. Now, look at the list of some of the issues Paul dealt with in his letter. First of all, as your outline says, there were deep divisions in the church. They were fighting over all kinds of leadership issues in Corinth. And Paul did his best to equip them on how to respond to conflict and tension in all kinds of areas. Using Paul's answers, we're going to learn some valuable life skills. Using Paul's words, we're going to ask and answer questions like, so how do we handle different personalities and different preferences? Is it ever okay to sue another Christ follower? 
How should we respond to Christ's followers who are living in open rebellion to God? Will followers of Jesus be judged by God? How should we handle divisive issues, issues where godly, intelligent people disagree? Does God care how a person looks or what a person's wearing? We're going to ask and answer every single one of those questions. Another reason why Paul wrote his letter was he discovered that there was rampant sexual immorality in the church. Under the guise of being gracious and non-judgmental and loving, the church in Corinth had chosen to ignore some clearly sinful sexual activity. Using Paul's responses to these situations, we're going to apply them to our world today. So over the next few weeks, we're going to do our best to answer questions like, what does the Apostle Paul teach regarding sex? What advice does he offer for single Christ followers? What advice does he offer for married Christ followers? A third reason for Paul's letter is there was confusion surrounding spiritual gifts in the church. Now, what are spiritual gifts? When you become a follower of Jesus, something supernatural takes place within you. Your spirit and God's spirit begin to live in relationship. You have a supernatural experience of the Spirit of God actually living in intimate relationship and interaction with your spirit. And as a result, a whole new dynamic opens up to you. A whole new realm known as the gifts of the Spirit becomes available to you. Gifts of the Spirit are supernatural abilities that God provides through His indwelling Spirit. And these spiritual gifts were very popular and very active in the Corinthian church, apparently to the point where they were sometimes being abused. And the Corinthians, they were thinking to themselves that they were spiritual because they experienced supernatural activity in their gatherings. But the Apostle Paul challenges and corrects this faulty thinking. In this letter, Paul laid out some guiding principles for the supernatural realm. And we're going to interact with Paul's instructions by asking and answering the following questions. Is it actually possible to hear God's voice? How can I know when I'm spiritually unhealthy? What traps should I look for in, in my walk with Christ? How can I make wise decisions? What does Paul teach about the spiritual gifts? What is this gift of tongues, speaking in other tongues? What's that all about? What does God look for in a worship service? Every one of these questions are going to be asked and answered in this series. Another reason why Paul wrote this letter was this. There was confusion surrounding some important theological truths in the church. Now, what do we mean by theological truths? Theological truths are issues and topics that are directly tied to our understanding of who God is, what God has done, and how that affects us, how we live it out. It appears that some theological issues were cloudy in the minds of some of the people in Corinth, and the Apostle Paul addressed them directly and thoroughly. So we're going to address them directly and thoroughly as well. Topics like, do I have to be good enough to receive communion? What is love and how can it guide me in my daily life? How does Christ's resurrection 2,000 years ago impact my life today? What kind of a body will a Christ follower have in the new heaven and in the new earth? We're going to do our best to provide you with answers in the weeks to come. So you can see that over the weeks and months to come, we're going to be digging into all kinds of different topics. And in doing so, 
we're going to do our best to provide you with a different life, life hack for every topic each week. We're going to do our best to provide you with a practical solution to an everyday problem. And we're going to start right now, today. In our remaining 10 minutes or so, using the words of the Apostle Paul, we're going to discover a life principle, a principle that can radically change how we view and how we respond to the most difficult and most disappointing people in our lives. How do you feel when you get the news that someone you love has stumbled, faltered, or outright failed? How do you respond when you are called to confront a close friend or a member of your family? How do you react when you have the unpleasant task of correcting people who are under your authority? Well, God used Paul to start the church in Corinth. Paul was their very first pastor. And in this letter, Paul is a spiritual father writing to his spiritual children. And he's writing to them because he's been given the troubling news that his spiritual children have gone astray. The Corinthians have done so many things wrong. And Paul has to write a letter filled with correction and overflowing with instruction. So how would you begin such a letter? Where would you start? Well, Paul began not by pointing out all the things that were wrong with these people. Paul began by pointing out all the things that were right with these people. Paul did not begin with blaming. Paul began with thanksgiving. Look what he wrote. He said, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ amongst you. Therefore, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that incredible? Knowing all that we know, looking at all the questions that we're going to be dealing with, Paul begins with, I thank God for you. What enabled Paul to be so quick to be thankful for these wayward people? Because Paul began by returning to their foundation. Paul began with grace. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. My wife and I have been married for, what, 36, 37 years now. But I remember our honeymoon because I didn't plan our honeymoon. It was a, a few weeks before our wedding, and, and my parents called me, and they said, Darren, how are the plans going for the wedding? And I said, oh, they're going well. And they said, so what about the honeymoon? Where are you going for your honeymoon? And I said, well, you know, I've got irons in the fire. I've got lots of ideas. And they said, Darren, you haven't planned anything at all, have you? I said, no, I haven't. My parents know me well. And I said, no, I haven't, Mom and Dad. And they said, well, listen, we anticipated that. So we have a gift that we want to give to you. We want to give to you and Jan the gift of a honeymoon. We're going to send you for two weeks to a, a resort in Mexico, all expenses paid. I said, wow, that's incredibly gracious and kind of you. Thank you. And so, after my wife and I were married, we found ourselves on a jet heading to Mexico, arriving for two weeks in a beautiful high-end resort in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. One day, we're walking along the beach, and I, I see an advertisement that said, free cruise. And I said, Jan, look at that, a free cruise. 
And Jan said, Darren, nothing's free. You know, it's going to be some scam. I said, Jan, it's a free cruise. Come on. All we have to do is sit through some timeshare presentation. I can sit through a timeshare presentation for a free cruise. And she says, oh, whatever. All right. So I drag her along and we're on this day-long cruise to some area uh, along the coast of Mexico. It was a great day. And then, sure enough, the next day, we had to spend a couple hours being guided through this condo and being given this high-pressured sales pitch from this very aggressive woman with an American accent. And she was good at her job. I'll give her that much. She had Jan and I in this condo, and, and we're walking through. And I'll never forget, the lady takes us into the living area in the condo. And she says, Darren, can you see yourself sitting here on a, a beautiful day here in the ocean outside you? Can you see yourself, Darren? I've got a good imagination. And I said, yeah, I can see myself sitting here. Then she takes us into the kitchen, and she says, Jan, can you see yourself in this kitchen preparing a beautiful meal for you and your husband with the ocean roaring outside? Jan looks at me with like rolling her eyes and I jump, kind of elbow her subtly with my elbow and she says, yes, I can see myself in this kitchen preparing a meal with the beautiful ocean outside. Jan's a really bad poker player. And so the woman, you know, she's thinking, okay, I've got this couple. And so she takes us into the next room where she sits us in front of this big desk with these contracts, and she pushes these paper in front of us. And she says, so Mr. and Mrs. Latham, would you like to sign, and, and would you like to purchase, you know, a timeshare in this condo? And I said, oh, oh, you don't understand. I said, this is beautiful, this is wonderful, but I can't afford this. And she said, oh, Mr. Latham, I'm sure you can. I said, no, you need to understand. I, I, I don't have any money. I don't have any money at all. I could not afford this. And she said, with all due respect, Mr. Latham, you could not be in a resort like this if you didn't have any money. And I said, oh, you don't understand. I said, we just got married. I'm a pastor in a, a small church in Canada, and I, I don't have any money at all. I'm just here on my father's credit card. Folks, next time you're sitting in church, I want you to look around. None of us deserve to be here. None of us have earned the right to be called children of God. Every single one of us is here on our Father's credit card. Every single one of us is here because of His grace given in Christ Jesus. We're all here on our Father's credit card. We're all here because He paid our moral debt. He paid the debt that we could not owe through Jesus Christ. He cleansed us, and he offers us the gift of salvation. I haven't earned it. I couldn't pay for it. It's based on what he did on my behalf. It's a gift he's given to me. It's through that lens, the lens of grace, that the Apostle Paul looked upon the church in Corinth. It was through that lens, the lens of grace, that the Apostle Paul saw their failures and faults. Because it was through that very same lens that Paul saw his own life. Because it was upon that very same foundation, the foundation of grace, that Paul himself stood. And therein lies our first lesson. Therein lies our first life hack from 1 Corinthians. Here it is. When you see people through the lens of grace, you respond to people with the heart of God. When you see people through the lens of grace, you respond to people with the heart of God. Are you facing a difficult situation in your life? Are you facing a difficult person in your life? 
follow the example of the Apostle Paul. Look upon that situation. Look upon that person through the lens of grace. Because when you see people through the lens of grace, you respond to people with the heart of God. Can you think of a moment in your life when someone looked at you through the lens of grace? You deserved condemnation. You expected rejection, but you received grace. You experienced the heart of God. Are you struggling? Are you wondering how to respond to a failure in the life of someone you know, someone you trust, someone you love? Now listen, don't ignore their failure. Don't make excuses for their failure. Offer honest feedback regarding the failure. Deliver the appropriate consequences for the failure. But always and only do so after you have first begun with grace. First, look upon that person, look upon that situation, look upon that failure through the lens of grace. Because when you see people through the lens of grace, you respond to people with the heart of God. Let's pray together as we conclude today. God, I thank you that when you look at my life, you look at me through the lens of grace. You didn't ignore my sin. You didn't ignore my rebellion. You didn't look away. You looked directly at me, but you looked at me through the lens of grace. And you applied the life, the death, the blood, the resurrection of Jesus Christ to my sin, to my failure, to my rebellion. You offered me the gift of forgiveness, the gift of cleansing. And I thank you for that. If you're watching me today and you're a follower of Jesus, look at your own life through the lens of grace. You're here because of our Father's credit card. You're here because He paid our moral debt. You didn't earn it, and so you can't maintain it by your good deeds. It's grace. So rest in His grace. Rest in His mercy right now. Maybe you're watching and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. I want to invite you right now to accept this gift, to accept this cleansing, to accept this grace into your life right now. It's been paid for already. He's been offering it to you since the day you were born. Today is your opportunity to finally extend your hand, to extend your heart, and to receive His grace and mercy. If you'd like to do that, then pray with me right now. God, I acknowledge my rebellion. I acknowledge my sin, my failure. And I don't want to live this way anymore. And there's nothing I can do to restore myself. There's nothing I can do to, to fix all that I've done in your eyes before your throne. And so I accept your gift of cleansing. I accept your gift of grace. I accept your gift of mercy that was purchased through Jesus Christ. Come and fill me with your spirit now. Cleanse me, change me, transform me from the inside out. And would you give me the courage now to tell somebody about this decision that I've made, this gift that I've accepted, even before I lay my head on the pillow tonight? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you just prayed that prayer with me for the first time, I wanna give you an opportunity to respond right away. On the screen in front of you, you will see a number. Text that number and one of our staff, one of our team, one of our pastors will respond to you with a text in return. We're not gonna phone you. We're not gonna place you on a mailing list. We're not gonna harass you in any way, but we will offer our assistance to you in any way we can and offer to help you take the next step in your journey toward Christ-centered living. 
Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us on this first of our extended Life Hack series. Look forward to seeing you in the weeks to come as we continue to unpack more questions and answers from the letter of Paul to the church in the ancient city of Corinth. God bless you. Thanks for being with us today.